Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. This week, I'm going to do something in between the best of and the year in review. Looking back at some of my interviews from 2015, both in terms of significant subjects and personal favorites. First, a sequence of three interviews with important figures in the Greek drama, or perhaps Greek tragedy, that dominated 2015. One of my first interviews of the year was with Yanis Varoufakis, conducted just a few days before he was thrust into the center of worldwide attention as the series of government's first finance minister, it displays all the optimism for the first left government in Europe in decades. Obviously, Syriza says they're not going to do this, but what is the space to actually get out of these strictures that have been used by, you know, government after government across Europe to say, you know, too bad this piece of paper says we have to do this to our population? On Monday morning, after we form a government, uh, we had determined that we shall simply address our European partners and propose to them that we sit down around the table and hold a rational discussion about how the costs of the Greek program to the average European citizen can be minimized in such a way that uh, the whole of Europe benefits and Greece gets a chance to breathe within it. We have confidence, um, which we effectively pluck out of a degree of optimism about uh, (laughs) democratic Europe, (laughs) That our partners will not refuse us the opportunity to listen to rational um, ideas and proposals uh, for the benefit of everyone in Europe. Um, What is, what can this, the situation in Greece now do for Europe? What are, the, what are its broader implications, especially for the economic policies that we've seen across Europe, not just in Greece, and especially at the European level, at the level of the European institutions? Well, let me remind you that Greece was the canary in the mine. In 2010, we were the weakest link of the chain. Uh, even if we didn't exist in the, in the Eurozone, somebody else would have taken our, our place, because this was a systemic crisis that Europe... Uh, steadfastly refused to deal as such. And the social cost throughout Europe of this denial has been uh, enormous and it is actually growing. So it doesn't really matter whether it's a Greek prime minister or an Irish prime minister or a French prime minister who simply stands up in a European Union Council meeting or a Europe group meeting and says, no, we are not going to feed unsustainable debt with unsustainable debt on condition of austerity that reduces the income from which these debts will be repaid. And we need to have a rational discussion in Europe uh, that deals with the problem that we constructed the Eurozone, a monetary union that was incapable of sustaining the financial crisis of 2008-2009, and Our denial after that in 2010 onwards, which took the form of the Greek memorandum, the Greek bailout, number one, which then became the template that was uh, applied to all the other nation states in the Eurozone. That approach has failed demonstrably, 
And let's have a discussion right from the, from, from the beginning. Instead of insisting that we have had agreements over the last year that now need to be implemented. They cannot be implemented. Uh, they can't be implemented more than the Versailles Treaty was implementable after 1919. Six months, one defined referendum and one signed memorandum of austerity later, I spoke with John Milios, one of the chief architects of Syriza's economic platform. He had just quit the party's central committee over the austerity that the government would now be forced to implement in exchange for more loan guarantees. He laid out what many on the Greek left felt over the summer. I have to tell you my personal feeling. The government has put me and I think has put us all in a very peculiar situation, in a schismatic situation that is in a in a rupture between our political views and our position, our stance as part of the working people, of the working majority, of the working class, and as members of Syriza, given that Syriza is the major government partner. According to what I have already discussed with you, Uh, the policy of this government is a policy in favor of capital, is a policy uh, that is a policy that uh, promotes the neoliberal agenda. That is, is a policy and a government that is, uh, by definition, against uh, uh, what Syriza believe and uh, believes, and what this uh, 61.3% of the people have demanded. So it's not um, a problem of series alone, it's um, uh, more than that a problem of um, these uh, people who have been mobilized uh, in the past months, uh, but, uh, but also during the last weeks in order to support the no vote in the memorandum. It's a question that these people, the 61.3% of the uh, Greek electorate has, and I am part of this 61%, what shall we we do now? My answer, my definite answer is that uh, I'm going to fight with this 61.3% and all the other people who are going to come, because if we didn't have the terror situation, the terrorization of the population through the the closed banks and so on, this 61% would be something more. So uh, um, uh, I have uh, definitely decided that I I belong to this part of the society and I'm going to continue fighting against austerity and the government measures which resemble are like the the measures of previous governments. This is the one side. The other side is that I don't want to see a split in the uh, party. I I want to um, uh, take part in the discussions which now open. Uh, As you have seen, the majority of the Central Committee, that is uh, comrades from from all fractions, or nearly all these uh, streams, political and ideological, ideological streams, which support, continue to support the no stance, 
and say to the government, uh, you have to find another way out of this crisis by not signing this memorandum. Finally, just a couple of months ago, and after the, the re-election of Syriza on a program of austerity, I had a conversation with Andreas Karitsis, another former prominent figure in Syriza, on the search for a new political home in Greece. You know, according to my you know, understanding of our situation, it's not exactly exact that there are, there are not enough space for doing different uh, alternative politics at the political level so much. Uh, what we need is to increase our power because if we had more power, I'm talking about the people, we could use, let's say, electoral politics and then a government, a left or a progressive government to initiate the process of liberating our society. Okay, so th- there is a point of actually doing politics at that level. But in order to be effective, to, to be meaningful after the Greek experience, we shouldn't do only that. We should go beyond, let's say, electoral politics, not against it. Okay, We need to broaden, to, 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 to have a wider idea of what it means to do politics in the new conditions. So, yes, we are entering in a new era in which our societies, and that's what we saw clearly in Greece, uh, in which our societies are deprived of the right to have access to crucial decisions. Okay? And I'm not talking about only you know, the, the Eurozone area and the neoliberal rules, but you, you can look at the TTIP agreement and other similar ones. All these new, let's say, institutional forms or types of regulations, all these are creating a universal problem but in order to respond universally, you have to start fighting in an efficient way on the local, on the local level. My, my main concern and other people as well is to grasp and put in action new ways of mobilizing people in, in order to gradually reclaim the control over the basic social functions that are to locally, let's say, located. In order to be able to push even further this fight, uh, at the national level at some point and maybe in the future uh, uh, even broader. But More locally, this year saw massive public sector strikes and social protests against austerity in Quebec. For me, this was one of the key stories of 2015 in North America. Early in the summer, I spoke with two researchers from IDES, Quebec's left think tank, Julia Pasca and Evelyn Couturier, told me about the transformations that austerity has wrought in Quebec. Uh, new in Quebec, and, and so yes, the, the, it's, it's more difficult to get, to get a, you know, healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, uh, you have to pay more to get education, daycare and stuff like that. And so people say, well, I mean, uh, I'm not getting the services that I, I should be getting, mm-hmm. and so let's, uh, you know, why are we going to, uh, if I have to pay more and, and, and you have this huge public sector, we should, uh, we should like, make it smaller, and mm-hmm. so you can, and then, so the taxpayers won't have to pay that much tax, and it's really, uh, I think, yeah, the, 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 the public opinion is, is shifting and, and of course, so to get back to the, the, the employees of the public sector, that, I mean, it's, it's obvious that they don't, they don't, their image is not mm-hmm. as good as it might have been in the past, I guess. Yeah. And, I, and, and this sort of taxpayer rhetoric um, 
that you really see, instead of talking about citizens, talking about yeah. people as taxpayers, I guess is, it's part of the... Yeah, we're not citizens anymore. We're consumers of, well, there's taxpayers, so mm -hmm. I want to have more for my money, but also I'm a consumer. So mm -hmm. why am I paying for some things that I don't consume? Because I'm not, I'm not an old person. I'm not, I'm not a parent. I'm not a student. I'm not, I'm not so many things. So why should I pay for those things? Uh, and and this this concept, con conception that people are really um, are, are enjoying the public services as freeloaders and disappearing, as if the students who are paying low tuition fees will not become citizens who get jobs and then be able to pay back the society. This this uh, this. This link between each other is dis disappearing, not because it doesn't exist anymore, but because we're masking it and just talking about people as their function in the productive society and taxpayers and consumers. But in late August, just as the public sector strikes in Quebec were heating up, I invited Roger Rachy onto the show. Roger, longtime Quebec activist, described not just the prospects for this newest mobilization, but the overall possibilities for anti-austerity in Quebec and beyond. That is obviously the question. The question which has been, uh, I would say, the heart of all these demonstrations and all this mobilization for a year has been up to what point can the government be pushed? And is there any way in which this government can be uh, uh, brought to its senses or even pushed back on austerity? It's hard to say because we're in the beginning of the mandate, right? Mm. Uh, only one year into the mandate, second year is just starting. The satisfaction of the government has risen. It's around 50 to 60% level, which is important. There's a couple of by-elections coming up, but nothing really major to threaten the government. So the question really becomes up to what point enough social disturbance <laughs> can be uh, you know, uh, created in Quebec to force the government to rethink some of its policies. And it's a very difficult point to assess. I think what is being put forward to all the participants in that incredibly diverse uh, anti-austerity movement is that unless one struggles today, one never knows to what degree you're going to be pushed back yeah. uh, by the government and how far the austerity measures are, uh, are going to go. It is so severe, so pronounced, so deep, that unless one stands up right now and does its utmost to block it or reverse some of it, what might happen in the next few years will be incredibly dev devastating. So it's difficult to assess. What we're trying to do, I think, is, is to make as possible, as much as possible, these movements converge mm -hmm. around some common sets of demands and austerity, increased taxation of the wealthier uh, groups in society, of course, increased taxation of corporations. And in this way, you know, uh, respond to the deficit, which is not that big, by the mm -hmm. way, but still respond to the deficit. So there's some common demands. The question of common action is really difficult to get to. Mm -hmm. uh, community groups have gone on strike and are willing to go on strike. Students have demonstrated that they could go on strike. Up to what point the public sector, right, the unions, the unions uh, can be brought to strike is difficult to assess. In the educational sphere, possible. In health, there are so many incredibly repressive laws that could totally destroy unions that obviously before engaging yeah. in walkouts in the health sector, one has to be very sure as to what you can achieve. The more radical elements in the trade union movements are putting forward a two-step strategy. Uh, organized walkouts in the educational sphere, i.e. schools, 
and then around that maybe bring in some elements of the health sector, either in regional strike or some supporting strike. But it has to be a fairly elaborated tactical arrangement so as to not to basically fall into the trap and then open the door to massive destruction of the social movements. While the rest of Canada has seen nowhere the same extent of social unrest, it has felt the same broad trends of increasing inequality, stagnation, and austerity as the official response. Here's the CCPA's Armin Yalnizian speaking with me in March on the shape of inequality in Canada. Well, definitely we're not as bad as the United States. Of course, nobody does extreme like the U.S., so we always look more moderate uh, than the Americans. But what's true is our income inequality higher today than it was 30 years ago. It grew more rapidly in the 90s than in the United States. The pace of growth was more dramatic in the 90s um, than the uh, than in the United States. Um, the issue for me looking at income inequality is from about the mid-1970s to the, um, from about 1997 to 2007, Canada was a job juggernaut. It just created more um, in relation to its labor market than any other country in the G7. So the question is, under those conditions of incredibly rapid economic growth, why did inequality rise rather than settle or go further down? I mean, what would it take to reduce income inequality is the big story then. I think it's often overlooked is are we doomed to deal with elevated levels of income inequality? That same episode also featured the economist Franco Milanovic, one of the worldwide experts on inequality, talking about a new global plutocracy that wields not just tremendous economic, but also political power. It's really fair to talk about this as a kind of plutocracy. Yeah, you know, what of course is the, the danger there, and I think to some extent it's already kind of in the process of materializing itself as a danger, is that uh, uh, economic power, which oftentimes is actually acquired through a combination of political and economic power, uh, that economic power at some point tends to be translated more and more into political power, which essentially means uh, sort of an attempt or maybe ability of the rich people to design the rules which are in their own favor and to maintain these rules. And I think that that is what we see at the level of nation state, you know, quite often because that's where the governments operate. And we also see that at the level, at the global level, although there, of course, the, the governance rules are different, uh, but, you know, still through the organizations like the IMF, the World Bank, World Trade Organization, or through informal gatherings like Davos and, and others, you're essentially having a group of people who are very rich trying to sort of determine you know, global rules. And just a pure sort of a factoid, if, you I mean, this is, we are talking about really people who are extremely rich and talking about billionaires in this case, not about, you know, the 70 million of, of top 1%, but we're talking really about the select group. Uh, if you just simply look at the list and keep the same level of real, uh, real uh, wealth, over the last 20 years, and these are people who had one, over one, you know, now two billion because you have to adjust for the price increases. You see that they have actually uh, gone from having something like, uh, I can't remember, you know, 4%, their wealth was equal to 4% of global GDP, and it's now 8%. So it's clearly that they have these very wealthy people have become even richer. Right, and have the power to, to continue being able to accumulate that. Yeah, I actually have, I mean, I think to a large extent have been able, or maybe they would even become 
more able to do that, to decide on, on the rules. And I think potentially it is, it is a danger both for democracies at the national level, which then really would become less meaningful, because if you have many of the economic decisions determined you know, externally, then really what you really decide in your own country is, is not that much. I mean, and then secondly, of course, there would be the global rules that might influence. The rise in inequality across the world has been partly caused and bolstered by changes in ownership and investment patterns. In short, with what the wealthy do with their money, or more abstractly, with how capital operates. Here's one of <clears throat> the rise in inequality across the world has been partly caused and bolstered by the changes in ownership and investment patterns. In short, with what the wealthy do with their money, who they are, or more abstractly, with how capital operates. Here's another of my highlights of the year. Economics professor J.W. Mason on how the shareholder revolution that started in earnest in the 1980s has cashed out today. So the change then had to do with sort of a multi-step process where initially in the 80s you had a real kind of conflict, overt conflict between organized shareholders and managers. Um, you know, the sort of dramatic, visible form of that were, were these hostile takeovers, of which there were a lot, a lot of the biggest corporations in the country had their managers forcibly removed, which is really quite extraordinary. There aren't a lot of other episodes that you can point to like that. Uh, and there was sort of at an ideological level, organized business groups, the kind of kind of where the visible ideological representatives of the managerial class were not happy about the shift toward shareholder value and the elevation of financial criteria and the, the larger role for financial markets. Um, this this was considered very vocally a, a change for the worse from their point of view. But by the end of the 1980s, the kind of stage of conflict had kind of ended, and you saw at the beginning of what we continued to see, which is the sort of the managerial strata adopting the, the viewpoint and language of, of shareholders, of financial owners of financial assets more generally. And, and a big part of that, I think, has to do with the change in the career path, where you're, you're much less likely to rise from your career in one uh, one firm or even in one industry, and much more likely to, 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 to change around frequently, and the people at the top come in at the top and don't necessarily intend to stay there that long, and it really changes the, the kind of... The, instead of identifying with this particular enterprise, you identify with the shareholder class in general because you expect to be a member of that class. They're the ones who put you there. They're the ones you're going to count on for your next position. So it's a very different kind of um, sociology management. Yeah, and actually taking that, finally, one of my favorite interviews of the year was that with Jane McAlevey, labor organizer and author. Jane distills a lot of what ails the movements we have today, but maybe more importantly, she gives a strategic roadmap for how to get stronger, for how to grow our power, and ultimately change the world. This last clip is therefore not just a highlight from 2015, but a watch phrase for 2016. Happy New Year, and talk to you soon. In the meantime, here's Jane McAlevey. I think that the problem is that when we're doing just a mobilizing model and just a mobilizing approach, all we're doing is talking to the already convinced, and we're not doing base expansion. And the beauty of real organizing, uh, the evidence for which I think is abounds, sort of like in the Nevada examples in Chicago, but real organizing is about focusing on people who are not yet convinced, 
and not yet involved in our movement. Um, and it's what we call focusing on the undecideds. And that's, we have to do several things to rebuild a powerful movement. We have to focus on the people who are not yet with us. So we're not reaching them by tweeting and Facebook and email, for one. And then two, we have to be clear that there's a difference between an activist and an organic leader. Because if we want to get to scale, what we call the organic leader is this person who has supporters. They're people of influence, but among our ranks, right? I don't mean of influence like presidents and mayors (laughs) and crap. I mean among ordinary people. There are actually people who influence other people among the grassroots base. So we have to have a very clear model for how we identify them. And in the labor movement, we actually have systematic methods for how we identify them and how we distinguish them from activists. So um, I think that we have to do two things. We have to focus on the undecideds and we have to have a theory of what the organic leader is, who it is, because that's who we have to focus our education and training work and political education work with, because they themselves then become massive replicators of the work and they can bring along a ton more people. And if we're confused all the time about, well, what's an activist and what's a leader and what's a, you know, an, an activist centric movement, which is what we have right now, isn't working. 